Buy movies are the best, and today we have a special guest, Doug Redini, is one of the founders of the Ian Fleming Foundation, which is dedicated to the study and preservation of the history of Ian Fleming's literary works, the James Bond phenomenon, and their impact on popular culture, and procuring, restoring, preserving, archiving, and displaying the original works of Ian Fleming, and all of the subsequent products, which include the films, as well as the merchandise and memorabilia spawned by the films and yes that's the vehicles too this is dan and tom from spymovienavigator.com and our show cracking the code of spy movies welcome to our cracking the code of spy movie show doug thanks for joining us my pleasure dan nice to be with you guys yeah thanks we're thrilled to have you here it's all right we want to go over the goals in detail of the Ian fleming foundation a little bit more than i just said and so tell us sure. tell us about that and what your real goals are here well, I mean, it started out as a, uh, it was sort of a fluke. Uh, I think you've spoken to a couple of my other partners in this. We were offered a submarine that was used in For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was at the Intrepid Aircraft Carrier Museum. Uh, we ended up owning it. Mike Van Blerkum and John Cork and myself, uh, we restored it. And then we sort of looked at each other and said, what are we going to do with it? Uh, We thought it would be a good idea to utilize that, to raise money, and then we donate the money. That was 30 years ago, and today we own 42 vehicles, and we continue (laughs) to do exactly that same mission. All the money we raise uh, exhibiting these vehicles all around the world, we donate that money to charity. Oh, that's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, do you guys do the restoration yourself? We do. We do 100%. Wow. Well, I should say we do one. I, I should say we do about 95%. There are, there are times where we have to send a vehicle out to, you know, be painted or maybe some mechanics done on one of the vehicles or so on and so forth. But yeah, we do all of it, and it, all of our work that we do is voluntary. Wow. It amazes me that we've amassed a core group of individuals that have the ability to do so many things. Currently, we're restoring the actual full-size Goldfinger jet Ow. Uh, that was used <laughs> in Goldfinger. The jet actually became, uh, it was junked back in 1988, and it sat for a long, long time just outside of Kansas City, Missouri. We ended up buying the front 25 feet, which uh, included the cockpit and a couple of rows of the uh, cabin. But Ironically enough, that our two neighbors in the in uh, the location that we're located are commercial airline pilots, and they and and one of our volunteers, one of the board members of the foundation, is a guy named Colin Clark, who's a maintenance supervisor at American Airlines. So, I mean, it just all came together w- with working on things. It, it it's an amazing journey for 30 years to think that we've brought things that would have disappeared forever back to life again yeah and and this you've done this on your own i mean i, I know you you just told us how you started and with the one vehicle and so on now you've got all of the, this huge collection but you're not getting funding from the ian fleming publishing companies or you're not getting funding from ian productions or anything right you're just no 
No, that's a really good question, Dan. No, we we don't. The only funding that we get is uh, for many years, our vehicles have been um, toured, uh, displayed, exhibited, if you will, around the world. Mm -hmm. And any of that money goes to pay rent and utilities and the cost of material to restore things. So, yeah, it's... (laughs) It's been feast or famine. There's been years where we haven't done any tours. But back in those days, our rent was extremely cheap. We were in an old farm building uh, just up the road from where you're talking to me now. Yeah. And it was it was very, very cheap. Uh, But now things have changed and rent is uh, pretty exorbitant. Cost of heating is exorbitant. an issue especially here in the midwest during the winter mm-hmm. but we've managed to survive and when the when need be if we need to put our own money into it we do we put our own money into it sure. but uh and i th- and in all fairness dan that's a really good question uh, we we're we've gotten to the point where we've been recognized in so many venues yeah. in so many avenues around the world that People are people are supportive. Um, we've got a we we have a major project coming up where I'm I might actually be testing the waters for a GoFundMe page. Okay. We've we've never ever done that before, so this is actually new territory for us. Mm-hmm. But um, the finishing touches on the Jetstar Jet may prove to be a little bit more expensive and that's outfitting all the missing instruments and gauges in the cockpit of the goldfinger jet so sure that's an enormous yeah i mean obviously nobody's flying jet stars of that era anymore (laughs) (laughs) they're just just way too old and no one's doing it yeah 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 but trying to find instruments and gauges and things that we need could prove to be a little bit difficult. Uh, so we need some, a little financial support to help that cause. Sure. Now you have, now you have, you have pictures of that jet on your website, right? You have the model, you have model, you have the models, original models. We, we have the original model. And thought. then, uh, we, about two years ago, we bought the actual jet. Yeah. And I, right. I, I do believe, I do believe, the last time I checked their website, I do believe there's a photograph of the uh, the jet. If there isn't... Yeah, there's one without a nose on it and one with a nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, like I said, it's 25 feet, so it incorporates everything you actually see that's important in the film. It's the doorway where Honor Blackman goes in and out and Connery goes in and out. And that's the part we actually wanted. So luckily for me, when I reached out to the, to the junkyard and they sent me photographs, uh, after I got over the initial shock of how bad it looked, um, I was happy to see the part that we really wanted was still, still around. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it takes obviously a lot more money to restore the real jet than the models. And so people can donate, though, right, through the website. And if anyone's listening here now and wants to go to the website, it's ianflemingfoundation.org, and you should check it out. It's great. they got a lot of cool stuff on there. But they can yeah, donate, they right? Can. 
They, they, they can. Yeah. And thank you for that, Dan. Yeah, they, they certainly can. We just, we thought that there, and we've discovered over the years that there are a tremendous amount of, um, sites supporting the history of the jet star jet. Um, and we thought that if we did something like a GoFundMe page and we let those organizations know that those, those people that appreciate the jet star history, one, one other thing before we move on, Dan, I have to tell you something that really was quite exciting for us. Okay. When I did, when I did the research to make sure that the jet was the actual jet, which I do on all the vehicles that we own, we, we don't own any uh, replicas or anything that isn't something that was uh, authenticated or used in the film. I stumbled upon the fact that not only did Elvis Presley fly on this jet, and he flew on this jet before he ended up buying his uh, own jet star, uh, oh but then we found out that Muhammad Ali had flown on this jet as well. Wow. Uh, wow. So there's a little bit of history besides Sean Connery and yeah, Blackman, yeah. <laughs> which which was an added bonus that yeah. we were we managed to we managed to keep it. So um, Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. That's it is, yeah. yeah. It's it really exciting was. to find that kind of stuff out. Wow. So yeah. I mean you you ha- have been doing this for thirty years as you said and a, a great testimony to the the abilities you guys have to keep this thing going and for us to be able to go see this we tom and i saw the uh, bond in motion in london uh oh wonderful so that was an awesome that was wonderful presentation and so to be just to have the ability to go do that because of what you guys are doing is a tremendous asset for any of of Bond fans out here, spy movie fans. It's just terrific. So, well, that, That's very kind of you. Thanks. Oh, no problem. You deserve it. What was... <laughs> this has to be tough, right? What was the mis- most difficult time you had locating or discovering and acquiring one of these James Bond vehicles? Oh, I can tell you, Dan, that's not difficult because <laughs> the one singular vehicle that took the, the longest time was the Kenworth Semi from the Timothy Dalton film. Ah, License to Kill? The, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kenworth, Kenworth built three specialty trucks for that film. Now... When you when you look at the film, there are a bunch of there are a bunch of trucks. There are a bunch of Kenworth semis. You know when you see them all in a in a row yes. and they're pulling away from the the facility and everything. But there were three specialty trucks that they built. They built one that actually they had to put all of the instruments and the the steering wheel and the brakes and the and the throttle and everything in the sleeper behind the cab of the of the truck that Carrie Lowell was supposed to be driving. Yeah. Now, that's that scene with that particular semi you only see that it, it's only about I'm going to say 30 some seconds. Mm-hmm. You would have thought you would have thought that it would have been much easier for them to teach Carrie Lowell how to drive a semi for 30 seconds. <laughs> but but they didn't. They spent months and months and months and months at the Kenworth factory repositioning wow. everything so the 
So the stunt guy would be in the sleeper behind the cab. <laughs> uh, and then, and at the end of that film, that truck was brought back and all of that was taken out. And that particular semi was sold to the general public. Uh, an over the road truck driver was driving it. And ultimately it, the semi got into a terrible wreck and didn't, wasn't around. It didn't exist anymore. Then the other truck was the wheelie truck that stands mm-hmm. up on its back, which was all hydraulic. And I found that truck down in Florida huh. at a at a junior college. They actually didn't know that it was the truck from the film, but what they did is they took all the hydraulics out of it and they turned it into a monster truck. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. So that truck still existed, but the one truck that eluded me for 14 years was the the sideways wheelie truck, which was the most famous truck in my estimation. Well, the wheelie truck is pretty famous too, yeah, yeah, but yeah. but the sideways truck that was driven by Remy Julien um, that eluded me for a long time. I had reached out to the Kenworth folks, talked to some people that were still alive that had worked on it. And there was a young woman named Wendy who um, was the liaison between Kenworth and the producers. And over that decade or so of her help trying to help me find it, we had pretty much given up. And she ended up going to a corporate event where she overheard some guys talking and the one guy said, oh, I know where that truck is. And it turned out it was at a firefighting college in Oregon. Wow. And I contacted the, 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 the school. Uh, they did know that it was from a Bond movie. They had tipped it over on its side, and they were training uh, young guys that were and girls that were going to be firemen to get in and out of uh, wreck semis. Uh, they ultimately gave the truck to us. Oh. Um, wow. But but he warned me ahead of time. He said, you know, you got to see what kind of shape it's in. It's terrible. It's a complete pile of junk. But nonetheless, it's sitting in our archive. Uh, I've tried to look to see if there are any rebuild shows on television for semis, which, y- you know, you you both know that there are uh, a myriad of yes. car rebuilding shows, yeah. But there are there are no shows to actually rebuild semi trucks. Haven't seen it. Uh, so we're so we're hope we're hoping that someday the trucking industry, which is probably the most high profile job market in the in the country you know if you want to drive a semi trucking companies will hire you in a heartbeat and kenworth is a big player in 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 that genre but we're hoping someday come somebody comes knocking on our door and said this piece of bond history needs to be brought back to life but for now it's just sitting uh, but that took me the longest, Dan. That was 14 years, and I had pretty wow. much given up on it. But uh, yeah, that's a great story. And uh, just talking about that, and talking and hearing how you got that vehicle—that was going to be one of our questions: is how do you even start looking for a vehicle? Do you have a target list of vehicles you're looking for, and how do you even begin to start looking for something in this big old world? <laughs> 
Well, that's a really good question. It, it, I guess the way I'll answer that is it's it, it goes two ways. If we start looking for something, it's absolutely ice cold. Mm-hmm. You know, you really, really are starting from scratch. You don't know what you're going to find. You don't know exactly how to go about finding something. Yeah. Uh, you, you just you just start the wheels rolling and you go down one avenue and if that comes to an end you you, you veer off and head into a different direction. For me, the the great thing about the profile of the Ian Fleming Foundation is I will get an email or I'll get a phone call or a text and someone will say, I've heard rumors that this still exists. And this is what I know about it. And then you can pick it up from there and you can move forward. Uh, A a perfect example is the Jetstar, full-size Jetstar from Goldfinger. Mm -hmm. There was a guy in Canada who happened to be, you know, a fan of aviation. And he was just searching on the internet of various things um, not really looking for anything in particular but he happened to be a bond fan and uh, he he did a little bit of cross-referencing with some numbers and searches and lo and behold he thought he had found it in kansas city missouri uh, where he thought he found it was not where he found it but it wasn't very far from where he found it uh, it was at another location, um, and then it then it is in my lap to make sure that it is what it is. It's real, uh, and then start the uh, conversation to see what could happen. You know, if they want to get rid of it or not. Yeah. So that's an example of uh, someone contacting you. What would be an example of a vehicle you found in your first scenario where, hey, I'm starting cold. I have no idea where this thing is. What What did you actually find? that route in that using that well there 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 have been several instances where i have started a search to find some things uh recently we we here at the inflaming foundation have discussed the possibility of starting to look for vehicles that were referenced in bond novels oh and I know you're well aware of Raymond Benson, yep. who's yeah, uh, Raymond. lives in the area. Yeah, Raymond, in a few of his books, re- referred to a um, K10 speeder, which is an underwater motorcycle that you ride. You know, you have to have air tanks on, and yet you're underwater. But mm-hmm. it was hmm. it was a, it was something that crossed Raymond's path, and he thought, oh, that would be a great James Bond vehicle yeah. to you. The only difference, Dan, be- between a vehicle that appears in a Bond novel or a, a vehicle that appears in a movie, <laughs> there's an actual vehicle that appears in a movie, <laughs> and you're only looking for something that is referenced in a Bond novel. But nonetheless, we did we did find a couple of K10 speeders that are still around from. Oh low those many years ago but as far as a vehicle from a bond movie i guess one of the earliest ones was the bathos of from diamonds are forever yeah yeah. Um, when 
when we were approached by Reed Exhibitions back in about 93, they wanted to they wanted to rent our Neptune submarine that we had acquired from the Intrepid Aircraft Carrier Museum. And they wanted to know if we knew where there were other vehicles. Well, I had a, I had an inkling where there could be some other vehicles. And I said to them, I won't tell you where they are, but if I can find them, if you'll buy them and donate them to us at the end of the auto show tour, which was about a six or seven month tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they agreed to do that. <laughs> I tracked down the uh, bathos sub was in New Jersey. And then I tracked down the original wet bike that was used yeah. in the Sky who love me. Mm-hmm. And that was in Nelson Tyler's, warehouse in california and they had pushed it up against the wall and basically stacked things up against it and totally <laughs> forgot about it so wow that, that's amazing well, and you've got and you've got pictures on your websites of both of those so on your website yeah we do and yeah. and your you website's know, you guys are probably aware of the fact that we had a 30th anniversary celebration at bond in motion in los angeles yes yeah which was an expanded edition of what you saw at, uh, in London in Covent Garden. Uh, and Nelson Tyler came to our event. Nice. And, uh, I mean, it was pretty special to have a lot of behind-the-scenes people that had worked in the films to be there yeah. look, looking at things and vehicles that they, they had, a, uh, they had a par- uh, an important part in. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. That was cool. I mean, it's got to be exciting. I mean, when you do, when you when you get a lead, and and now you're closing in on a vehicle that you're looking for, and so on, that's got to be a thrill. <laughs> it is, and let me tell you real quickly before we move on, Dan. Going back to the Bathos sub, here's 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 an interesting part of that history that I had no idea ab- about. When we ended up buying that, uh, well, I should back up. When Reed Exhibitions bought it, and and we re got it repainted and got it prepped and so it went on the national auto show tour we were under the impression that it was just like any other vehicle that would have been built by the guys at pinewood studios and we felt that way for for quite a long time and then i got a phone call from i believe it was heritage auctions and this goes back 20 years if not longer and heritage auctions said we're about to auction off a lot that came from George Barris's archive. And they said, we think this particular lot might be of interest to you. So they sent me a link. And as I was looking at it, I had to sit down because I was like dumbfounded. I thought this, this confirms to me that George Barris built the, the, the bathos stuff from diamonds are forever. You know, legendary, legendary movie car builder, George Barris. And it was a whole bunch of Polaroid photographs of the process of him building that bathos. Oh, man. So, uh, and blueprints that were hand drawn by Ken Adam. Oh, geez. Wow. That's fantastic. So we ended up, we ended up buying the lot and, and because you guys are from the area, you're you're aware of the Volo Museum. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and uh, I'm I'm friends with the family that own uh, the Volo Museum. And nice. Brian Brian told me that uh, 
George Barris is going to be one of our guests. Oh. And I and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to bring this packet of information, this file full of stuff up there. And he came back right after lunch, and my wife and I were first in line, and I threw a picture of the bathosub down on his table, and I said... <laughs> Does this does this ring any bells to you? And he was looking at it, and he looked up at me, and he said, "Do you know that nobody knows that I built this for the film?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> I didn't know until until I until I ended up buying all of this stuff, and I showed him all the paperwork wow. and everything, and he was blown away by it. And he said he was thrilled to have been a part of James Bond, but he really never got the credit that he deserved. So, sure. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's but amazing. That was, that, was a, that was a really added bonus for uh, a part of the history of a Bond vehicle. Sure, yeah. Now, now I want to ask I want to ask you about another vehicle um, because sure. when Dan and I went down to the Keys, we went to Sugarloaf Shores Airport. Yeah. And you have a, you have one of the Cessnas from license to kill from that, from that scene yeah. and right. there used to be a cessna on the side of highway one right by the airport vehicle. is that the one you got yeah it's the same vehicle <laughs> nice okay so <laughs> you I got it right out. before we got there i think <laughs> so yeah. we couldn't see it <laughs> i reached out to the owner of that little bitty airport well now, um just as a little bit of a sidebar i actually am a I'm a background player at the pre-title sequence in that film. Um, wow. John Glenn, John Glenn is a very dear friend of mine, and Jerry Giroux, who was a marketing director, and 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 Cubby Broccoli and his wife, and you know, I I expressed an interest to bring my wife and daughter down and just kind of sit in the back and watch. And Jerry Giroux said, well, bring a suit and you, you know, we'll put you in the film. <laughs> so that film has always been very close to me. I really, really had a, we, we all had a wonderful experience on that uh, movie set. But I reached out to the, the little airport, uh, the owner, and I asked him, I said, you know, I hear you have the plane. You're using it as an advertising billboard. Do you ever want to sell it? And initially, he said to me that he wanted between five and seven thousand dollars for it. It had no motor in it. It had it had no interior. It no fuel tanks. No nothing. So it, at that particular point in our existence, we didn't have the funds. So I just forgot about it. And then about uh, I'm going to say it was probably five six years later. He called me up on the phone and he said, Doug, I'm getting married. I'm moving up to the mainland. Mm -hmm. I'm shutting all this down. If you want the plane, you can have it for a thousand bucks. And I said, I said, okay, we'll take it. I said, under one condition, you're going to have to at least take, have the wings taken off uh, when we arrive. And he did. He had the wings taken off, but we went down in a rider truck with a uh, hydraulic lift gate, and we actually used those wings to as a ramp to <laughs> winch it up inside the truck. <laughs> and we brought it back. Uh, it was winter here, and we when we arrived back, um, there was snow everywhere. It was cold. 
And we took it out of the rider truck, put it in my front yard, put the wings back on it. And it sat in my front yard for quite a long time wow. uh, until, until we could push it down the road to where we uh, our, our, our storage facility was. But that actually that actually is really cool because, um, you know, it was on a gimbal and that's the plane that you see Timothy yep. Dalton being lowered down on. Right. Um, plus there's a scene. If you look yep. after the pre-title sequence, it's sitting on its nose, yep. leaning up yep. against the building. We point that out in <laughs> one of our podcast episodes because yeah. everybody misses that. <laughs> they do. And, and the other thing that's really cool about that is uh, there were two identical planes because Corky Fornoff flew the other plane that takes off on that airstrip and he dips it so deep, so steeply that he clipped the wing yeah. on the ground when he takes mm-hmm. off. I noticed that, yes. Uh, so that actually was a flying version of our plane. Um and it, it's you know it goes it goes along with the the vehicles that we have from the Timothy Dalton era, and we're really happy. And it's been displayed uh, up in the ceiling in Bond in Motion in Los Angeles at the Peterson. They hoisted it up and had it hanging from the ceiling. Cool, so cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Why did the tail number? How does change? insurance work on something <laughs> like that when you're going to hoist something up like that? How do- well, you know, here's the thing. All insurance for all of our vehicles are covered from the moment they leave our warehouse in transportation, in exhibition and everything. Um, So we, we don't lose any sleep over it. They prove to us in, you know, on paper that they've insured everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we just sort of go on about life and don't worry about it. Yeah. I was going to ask, how did the tail number change on that? There was, I, I know, the, I think a three became an eight or something. <laughs> yeah, in it's our understanding that whenever an airplane or an aircraft is used in television or motion picture, if the plane is actually going to be moved, if it's going to taxi or it's going to move in any uh, fashion the actual tail number has to be the real tail number has to be properly displayed on the the aircraft okay and that's different from motion pictures with uh and television with automobiles Mm. 99% of the time when you see a license plate on a car or a truck in a motion picture it's all fake sure it's not it's not real but airplanes, it's a totally different wow. uh, b- ball game. So the tail number that you see on our plane, which is still the tail number that's on it today, is the actual tail number that was issued to that particular airplane. Okay. All right. That's cool. I never knew the, yeah. the story that is, about that. That's 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 cool. Uh, and it's a neat little well, we airport thought, we down there, too. Yeah. yeah, we thought it might have been you, but when we talked to the guy who was there, he... He just said a private collector bought it. So and <laughs> yeah, the, we, knew we had heard you. a rumor it was you, but we wanted to make sure. Well, and when Colin, when Colin Clark and I went and picked it up, it was about a hundred degrees. Yeah. Uh, there were there was not a single person around. Nobody was there. 
For some reason, I, I seem to think that the guy that owned that airport, was his name was Dan. I could be wrong. I don't know. Uh, but when we arrived, the plane was sitting there. The wings were off of it. We left a $1,000 cashier's check. We slid it under the door of his <laughs> little tiny... He had a little tiny uh, shed. We've been in that shed. <laughs> we, we slid it under there, and then we tried to figure out how we were going to get it up in there. And there were joggers that were jogging. Every so often, every couple of hours, there'd be somebody jogging or walking their dog that was going to walk down the runway and back. And a guy said... Um, are you guys taking the plane from the highway? Uh, are you taking it? And we said, yes. He said, oh, my. He said, that's been a fixture around here for decades. Uh, it was always a landmark that people would tell us, yeah. you know, if you said, where are you? And they said, well, we just passed the plane a little bit ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it was an empty little corner field when we passed it. <laughs> yeah, and some, of the, and some of the things that we found inside that, plane when we arrived would curl your hair because every kid in that area must have crawled in there and partied like oh my god (laughs) yeah well one thing i like about that area too is you've got i mean in a fairly small area right by where that that runway is they filmed a lot of the of the pre-title sequence so you can you can actually see a lot of the locations not just the runway yeah. Well, and he and he offered us the uh, the little jeep uh, mm-hmm. because that was his jeep that he used to run around the airport oh, yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we've been offered things over the years that we had to turn around and pass on because at that particular moment we didn't have the resources to find any money to do it uh, to mm-hmm. buy it. Um, I kind of wish that we had bought the Jeep. We sort of looked yeah. into it. Many, many years later, we tried to reach back out to see whatever happened to it. Uh, but we, you know, most likely I'll tell you that that Jeep is probably still on the island and still somebody is using it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can only do at the time it's offered to you what you're capable of doing. Yeah. Uh, sure, but there, there there have been some heartbreaks over the years. I can tell you that. Yeah, I mean it's uh, that's a cool little area too for from all the filming within a five minute walk. You, you see all the filming locations uh, for License to Kill that they did at the airport. Right. There. And we interviewed the current owner, Will. Uh, he told us a little bit about some of the stuff that was going on with the. Sure. Yeah, it was cool. It was fun. So all sure. right, so you, you all you guys have the original Hiller UH. 12 helicopter right that was used in from russia with love right the chase scene when they're chasing bond and tanya and he's driving the yellow truck and all that kind of stuff that had to be a thrill to to find and we saw it we just saw a picture of raymond benson sitting in it so that was kind of cool (laughs) yeah that's that's something that was actually in you know public domain it was out there the guy had tried to sell it a british guy had tried to sell it and then it then it kind of fell off people's social media. I mean, it was very early on in, in when you could look things up online uh, where it first became noticeable to people. And then, like a lot of the vehicles that we own, my filing cabinet is 
you know, it's just within an arm reach of me. And there are hundreds of files in there. And and once in a while, I'll flip through and I'll pull out something and I'll think, well, let's sort of revisit this and see what's going on with something. And I reached out. This would have been around 2010. Um, The guy still had it. He explained to me everything that he knew about it. I asked him if it was still for sale, and he said yes. Uh, it was one of the most expensive things that we ever bought. It wasn't the most expensive thing, but it was one of the most expensive things that we had ever purchased. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that it's the actual helicopter that was used in on the film. They only had one initially. There was an incident where it ended up falling into a lake mm-hmm. and sank down about 15 feet. Right. Wow. Uh, they weren't finished with the filming. Uh, they were close, but they weren't quite finished with the filming. The helicopter was pulled back out of the water. They had to bring a second helicopter in to do the finishing. The copter that went into the water was deemed unusable. Mm-hmm. The the version of the British FFA uh, uh, FAA back then uh, deemed it uh, unairworthy. It was sold as scrap, and it was purchased and brought back to the U.S where it was completely gone through and brought back to life. And it, it was uh, deemed airworthy again in wow. the U.S. And, and the owner then was told that it wasn't, you know, to be aware that it's only airworthy in our standards in the U.S. If you take it anywhere else, it might not be airworthy in other countries. Wow. And uh, there's a plaque, there's a you know, um, there's a plate that's attached inside the uh, cockpit uh, saying that it actually is uh, is a refurbished helicopter that was all put back together again, mm-hmm. uh, which is a remarkable story. It really is. Um, it's the oldest vehicle known to exist from the Bond franchise. Okay. Nobody owns anything from Dr. No. Wow. Not that we're not trying, but uh, nobody owns anything from that particular film. So the uh, the the uh, Hiller is one of our prized uh, possessions, and it still runs. It still works. I yeah. mean, yeah, yeah. It it needs to be it needs to be uh, inspected. There there need there's some major changes that would need to be done if a person was ever going to fly it again. But we have no intentions on flying it again. We're going to be very cautious from here on out when we do start it. We ju- we just don't want to uh, we don't want anything to happen to such a historic piece of sure. Hollywood memorabilia. Yeah. Sure. So you got the one that was refurbished, the one that crashed into the water. Yes. And fifteen and fifteen feet, it would have just been a couple of feet over the very top of it. You would have been able to reach down and touch it, and it was pulled up rather quickly mm-hmm. but uh at that point then 
the airworthiness was not sufficient for the UK standards. Sure. And it wasn't capable. So what they did is they basically just sold it as as uh, parts or scrap. Yeah. Uh, and that's where it was bought and brought back to this country. Very so. cool. Very cool. That's got to well, be one of the yeah, prized possessions. <laughs> absolutely. And you, you mentioned Dr. No. And one thing I like on your website is you, you say on your webpage on this, you say you're currently pursuing that blue sunbeam Alpine yeah. and, you're, and the 1957 Chevy convertible, which I like because it's like, hey, anybody know anything about this? And it's, that's a right. Great, I like that. Well, and we've, that's actually something that we've put a tremendous amount of effort into trying to find. One of our board members is Matthew Field who, along with A.J. Chowdhury, wrote the definitive history of the Bond franchise, in mm-hmm. my estimations, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of us have been trying our very best to see if we can find out what happened to it. The interesting thing about that Sunbeam Alpine and Dr. No in general is on the island of Jamaica, there, there was a Sunbeam Alpine dealership. Hmm. Uh, there was an actual dealership okay. back then that was selling those cars brand new. And any really Bond f- uh, aficionado would know that that car was rented just by a woman who was a friend of Chris Blackwell's and Ian Fleming's. Uh, she just happened to have one and said, yeah, yeah, sure, you can use my car. But so far, all we're running into are brick walls. It's how would it's, you validate that? Well, I was just going to say that the only the only true way that you'd ever know is is if you could find the VIN number on sure. that car. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at least you know who owned it at the time. There might be a chance to track a VIN yeah. number. And 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 trust me, even even at this moment in time, we're still working on it, and we have people that are working on it. I, I'm going to switch gears on the same subject, but I'm going to give you an idea of how we prepare ourselves when we can't find something, or we find something that we were looking for, and we find out that the outcome is not a good one. Ian Fleming was a f- big fan of American cars. He loved American cars. He owned two Thunderbird, four Thunderbirds. And much to his wife Anne's chagrin, he bought um, an Avanti. He flew to America <laughs> and he went to Auburn, Indiana. He went into the Studebaker plant and he ordered an Avanti to his specific uh, specifications and 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 exported it into the UK it was actually the first Avanti that had ever left the US soil uh, his wife hated the car he loved the car and we always thought that we'd like to find that after he died and got a hold of uh, some of his uh, closest friends and I think it was Ivor Bryce and he got rid of the car for and I looked for that car for several decades and ultimately what happened was i found out that the car came back to the u.s it was purchased by a u.s citizen in the in the uk brought back to the u.s and back in those early days the best way to store a car in new york city was to simply pay the 
the daily fee for parking a car in a <laughs> parking garage. Yeah, you know, you, you you and they still do that today. Uh, people will park their cars, uh, collector cars. They'll cover them up. And they'll park them in uh, multi-story parking garages, and they'll just pay the the, the fee. Wow. And that's what they did with Fleming's Avante. But unfortunately, there was a fire in the parking structure, and the cars on that particular floor were burnt up, and Fleming's car was actually burnt. <sighs> Uh, and not salvageable. Now, there's a good side to that story. The good side is I don't have to worry about looking for it anymore. We know what happened to it, <laughs> and, and there's and there is a finality to that story. Yeah. And you could, and you can put that to rest, and you don't have to That's you don't that. have to lose any sleep over it. But until we actually get to the bottom or to the end of whatever happens to a vehicle we're always we're always looking and searching and curious and i'm going to tell both of you guys that the thing that after 30 years of doing this the thing that i value the most the thing that i enjoy the most that brings uh a lot of happiness to me is the search yeah. you know i love doing it uh i i i consider myself being uh good at doing it and then when when there's a payoff at the end then i feel rewarded i feel the satisfaction and then i move on to something else and that's how we ended up with 42 vehicles so. yeah that's fantastic i'm going to ask you like what what's you know what's the craziest story that you could tell we always like to have something that nobody knows nobody else has heard before maybe Few people other than like John Cork would know. <laughs> What's the craziest story you can tell our listeners about any of the acquisitions that you've made, and and do you ever get in bidding wars? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can answer I can answer that question and your other question together. Years ago, I was made aware that. Um, the Mustang that went on two wheels in Diamonds Are Forever was available. And I was able to track that vehicle down to a police officer that lived in New York. And I flew out to New York, met with the police officer. The car was in pretty rough shape. I took a lot of photographs. I crawled into it. I located where the roll bar mounts were, where the camera mounts were. You had to know where to look. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't know where to look, you would probably have not seen them. And he knew who we were. He knew that we were a nonprofit organization. He knew that we used these things to raise money for charity. He wanted, I think if memory serves me corrected, he wanted $10,000 for it. And I told him, I said, yeah. I'll, we'll, we'll give you $10,000 for it. I left his house, got on a plane, flew back to Illinois. Now, this was before computers and cell phones. And about a day later, after I had returned, he called me on the phone and he said, I, I hate to do this to you, but I will still sell the car to you, but I've had another offer from Peter Nelson from Cars of the Stars in England. And Peter and I were old friends. We still are to this day. And Peter had offered a significant amount above that. 
which I knew that we couldn't afford. So Peter ended up with that car. Wow. So that's one that I found, brokered a deal and lost out on. But then years later, uh, I hadn't given up. And what crossed my desk was uh, the 429 Cobra jet that was used in Diamonds Are Forever, uh, the hero car that you see out in the yeah. desert and, and running in the streets of Vegas. And we ended up we ended up with that car. We only paid $8,000 for that car. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Is the Mustang still around? It is. We've owned it for 20 years. And I'm proud to say that there's some movement in a positive direction about getting it completely restored. So the we're very happy. We're very happy about that. Yeah. Uh, Peter got the one that went on two oh, wheels yeah. oh, sideways right. in between. Right, right. And that was actually a 351 yeah. Mustang that had the 351 mm-hmm. in it. Ours has a 429 Cobra Jet yeah. that was used for all the street chasing scenes. Yeah, that was uh, a nice car. I will tell you, uh, I mean, to, to continue and just briefly tell you about the uh, excavator that we have from Skyfall, because a lot of people that come into our archive and they see this massive big caterpillar excavator sitting there their first inclination is that we must be storing it for a construction company (laughs) until i you know until i point out all the oddities about it and, and explain to them that it was you know custom built just for the film yeah uh, we have a fellow who's uh, a friend of the foundations and one of our volunteers who was working for Caterpillar at the time, Alan Porter. And he told us that at the end of the film, that Caterpillar had retained the the excavator. So I didn't think a whole lot about it. I didn't do anything about it. We were told that they were going to put that caterpillar in their visitor center down in Peoria. Mm-hmm. So I knew I knew after hearing that that they pretty they pretty much weren't willing to part with it. Plus, it's a million dollar piece of equipment. Wow! Um, so and that is a nice by, visitor center they have. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah, been there. It really <laughs> is. It is, and and ultimately they never did put it in there. So at the end of the day, years go by and. Um, it's brought to my attention that they didn't put it in the visitor's center and through Alan, uh, who had left the employment of Caterpillar, he was able to give me the president of the company's email address. I wrote to the president cold with no advance warning, just wrote an email, told him who we were, told him that we were right down the road from where they exist. And I said, we use these vehicles to raise money for charity. I'm just curious, whatever happened to the excavator from Skyfall? And about a day later, I got a response. And it was a response. He had forwarded it to a team of people overseas. And they wrote back and said, it's sitting in a darkened warehouse. And no one is doing anything with it. It's just sitting there. And... uh, they said, if you want it, just come and get it. You can have it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, they put me in touch with the archivist for Caterpillar. I went down and, and looked at it. Didn't need It didn't need anything. It needed new batteries. Uh, we had it gone through to get it started. 
And then I hired a uh, construction company to go down from my hometown here to go down and get it. And we brought it back. And uh, yeah, it's it's just one of those. It's one of the philosophies that I've lived my entire life by. And the philosophy is this, that if you don't have something or you don't own something and you don't ask for it or you don't ask any questions, if you don't get it, you're not out anything because you didn't have it at the, in, the, in the first place. Right. So it's, right. be- it's better to go ahead and, and go out on a limb and ask for something right. because this is a perfect example of what happens when you are proactive and, and, you, and you go after something. Yeah, persistence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, story. I mean, Tom and I we were in sales, so it's the same thing. You don't ask for an order, you're never going to get it. You know, so <laughs> you got to ask, got to be there. Right now, right. you you also had a car from Casino Royale that was donated from Ford, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he laughs. Yeah, the Ford it, it's the Ford prototype, uh, the Ford Mondale, the British Ford. I made a phone call to Ford in the UK, and this was when we had vehicles. We only had a handful of vehicles. I think we only had about five or six vehicles at Bewley at the uh, National Motor Museum down near uh, Southampton, which is where we started exhibiting bond vehicles. So I reached out to the Ford Motor Company and I just made an inquiry of whatever happened to the Ford that you see in uh, Casino Royale. And they transferred me over to their design division. And a guy got on the phone and I said, do you know whatever happened to that? He said, well, that was a prototype. That was the only Ford Mondeo that was known to exist. And we persisted the broccoli family the eon productions did not want that car in the film uh, initially they gave in and the car was uh, used for daniel craig to drive on the ocean on the way to the uh, to the casino and the guy said well normally what we do with prototypes after we all the molds are made and everything is we just crush them and get rid of them that's the standard practice of what we do with those cars and i said would you mind checking to see if you still have it and they did uh he came back to me and he said uh yes it's still sitting in an outdoor storage lot i'm surprised that it wasn't crushed are you interested in it and i said yes and he said well tell me where you want it sent and you can have it we'll send it to you wow wow and because we were on display at uh, Bewley, uh they just literally sent it over to Bewley, and it's been in our possessions ever since fantastic wow. story that's that's terrific it's fascinating how you find these cars and get them that's just yeah that's so yeah, cool. yeah that's that, like you said the hunt is is what's exciting for you right i'm sorry go ahead tom no go ahead and see what you're gonna say i'm gonna take it to well, a different i'm direction. just gonna say i mean if if that phone call wouldn't have been made that car would have been crushed and lost and no one would have been the wiser you know yeah yeah that's wild so now you talk about getting these vehicles and restoring them. One of the things that when we were at Bond in Motion that impacted me, I guess is probably the best, because it reminded me of something in my youth, 
is seeing some of the banged up cars, you know, cars that had been in crashes when they were filming. And when you see a crash in a film, you don't really see the, the cold remnants of that vehicle anymore. And to see some of that at the, at the museum to me was fascinating. Yes. It's really cool to see some of these cars restored, but seeing some of these that were, this is what happens to some of these, you know, really expensive vehicles when they do these movies. I found right. fascinating. Well, and that's one thing that we go over as a collective when we are considering the the process of bringing something back to to together. I mean, the Jetstar from Goldfinger uh, that that's a whole nother ball of wax. I mean, that was literally there were huge trees growing up through the center of it and everything. So that was an easy decision. You know, that that jet is going to look just like it looked in the film. All the color, all the decals, all the paint and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that that's a no brainer. But when you when you get a vehicle and it's recognizable because maybe it wasn't uh, a crash or maybe got banged up, we're perfectly happy with leaving a vehicle look just like it did in the film. The cue boat that we have it's got some pretty nasty dings and stuff on it. When I had that boat repainted, I made sure that the body man didn't repair that. The mm-hmm. live and let die boat that jumps out of the water, out of the bayou like over the police time. car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got a massive crack on the front bow that I made sure that that was left the way it was uh, uh, done in the film. No, I, we, we toy with that question all the time luckily for us the vehicles that we own are all screen used and Mm -hmm. i'd say 99 percent of them are either the hero vehicles or a villain vehicle Uh, i think the only background vehicle we have is we have a russian lada neva that was used as a background vehicle in the world is not enough you really have to you really have to know where to look and you really have to look far in the background to see it but i guess the cougar comes to mind more than anything there were four cougars used in honor majesty's secret service one of them was in the uh, in the stock car scene that was annihilated in that scene and ultimately was sent to the junkyard and then our car was the one that was used in Switzerland. And then the British car that was used at Pinewood Studios, that car sold about three years ago uh, after a lengthy rotisserie restoration. Our car still got some damage on it. You, you, know, you don't see our car get into any damage. Uh, so we would be perfectly uh, fine with restoring that car to make it look fabulous again but we've we've chosen to leave it the way it is and then the fourth car i know where the fourth car is but we haven't gone we haven't done anything about it uh it's in it's in private hands um maybe someday if we uh have an overabundance of money that we want to sort of go after something we already have we might do that mm-hmm. so yeah i think that was the that one was at the bond in motion I think in London. Yeah. Cougar, right? Right. And uh, the Citroën? You have the Citroën from... The Citroën came... Yeah, yeah, it came from Luc Leclerc from uh, the French fan club in in, uh, Europe. It's a uh, studio car. Mm -hmm. 
it was used uh, to film the green screen behind it. Right, right. Uh, I've done some research on the car. That car actually appeared in some very famous French movies before it found its way into uh, oh, wow. For Your Eyes Only. It's just basically a shell with back wheels, uh, the interior. The whole front is gone off of it. Right, yeah, we saw that. Uh, but... You yeah, you've got a great picture of that on your on your website too yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of what that yeah. looks like. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Uh, we have the dune buggy now from for your eyes only, and then the Neptune. So we have three mm-hmm. vehicles from that particular film. We do have multiples from one particular from one particular film, and then other vehicles, uh, other films we have nothing from. We don't have anything from Spectre. And we don't have anything from Quantum of Solace, which is a shame because if we did, oh, and of course we don't have anything from No Time to Die, but if we did have something from those three particular films, we'd have everything, we'd have something from everything wow. except Dr. No. So, uh, right, right. yeah, and it's not that we haven't tried to get things from Spectre or quantum or no time to die uh it's just that the high profile stuff that comes up for sale in that it's just way out of our realm of possibility i will tell you if you're interested in hearing this uh strange thing that happened it about it about a year ago i decided that i had about five thousand emails on my computer and they, it was an amalgam of things that I had not read or I had simply just not deleted off of my computer. So I spent three days and a lot of wine, uh, bottles of wine sitting at my desk here, going through 5,000 emails and just getting rid of them. And I got to the point where I was about a year out I eliminated everything. I had about a year or so of emails to go. And I came across an auction site that I had never opened the email. And I thought, bloody hell, what? why didn't I open this? So I clicked on it, and it was the villain's motorcycle from Skyfall. It, wow. it was Patrice's motorcycle. Oh, yeah. Uh, that you see running over the Grand Bazaar. Mm-hmm. And I thought, damn, why didn't I why, why didn't why didn't I open that? So I took a chance and I reached out to the auction house and I said, Can you tell me if this ever sold? And I got a response within a half hour and the guy said, No, it did not sell. Wow. So I'm thinking, okay, hold on. I said, do you think the consigner still has it? And if so, would you be willing to work, reach out to the consigner and see if he'd be willing to sell it? And he did. And the guy was willing to sell it. And we now own that motorcycle. Um, <laughs> Good thing you were cleaning up your emails. <laughs> well, and I could have, I could have just, I could have just as easily just deleted all and it would have been gone. <laughs> but yeah, we ha- we have that motorcycle. It's still it's still being stored in the UK. We haven't shipped anything back yet. So 
Now, you have other memorabilia kind of items as well, other than vehicles, right, that you guys pursue or look at or acquire? Uh, a little, yeah. We do. Um, one of our board members is Brad Frank. He bought the huge, big bag, duffel bag that the uh, wet bike was supposedly in, in the, in the Spy Who Loved Me, you know, right. on board the submarine. Yep, yep, yep. He's donated that to us. We have a torpedo that was donated to us that was actually fired on the back of the Moonraker boat during Moonraker. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we do. We, we don't have a lot. We recently purchased a huge, huge canvas banner that says uh, the 007 car is here. That's all it says. It's two-sided. It's a uh, can- It's a uh, cloth, huge canvas banner, and the lettering is all hand-stitched on it and everything. And that was a banner for when the Goldfinger Aston Martin was promoting Goldfinger back in 64. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that hangs proudly up on the wall in our, our, our facility. Mm-hmm. We don't go after a whole lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, we do. We do, on the other hand, go after manuscripts and artwork that pertain to Ian Fleming, and those get donated to uh, the University of Illinois. They have a uh, they have a bunch of stuff that our our co-founder Mike Van Blerkum, uh, who's a graduate of the University of Illinois, uh, has donated a uh, an enormous amount of Bond and Fleming items to the university. But right. yeah, we do. I guess we always have it in the back of our mind that if some someday we're able to have our own museum or or put everything we own into a freestanding museum, you know, we're hoping that the producers someday get tired of touring and putting these traveling exhibits together and take all of their archive and we would take all of our archive and put it together in one location in a in a freestanding james bond museum that's what we hope for so whenever we do pick up these pieces that's sort of what's in the back of our mind yeah yeah what is it about the midwestern uh, u.s universities and bond stuff because you've got the the manuscripts at indiana you've got the the maybond notes yeah Yeah, tom Tom and i spent a day and a half looking through every page of uh, the the fleming documents at at the lily library Yeah, it's it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah within, within like three hundred miles, you've got all this, all of this bond knowledge. Yeah, yeah I know, yeah. I know. I can remember when we were in the little farm building down the road from my house here. It's within walking distance. I can remember a TV company, a production company, came in with a couple of satellite trucks, and it was real early in the morning. They pulled into this farm where the cornfields were all grown up around it and the producer got out it was a female producer she got out she greeted me and she sort of walked at a brisk pace over to me and she said we better not be here and you're punking us because this doesn't look right <laughs> she, this is the back when when ashton kutcher's tv show punked was going on and, uh, she was she was convinced that there was no james bond history in the middle of a cornfield um, <laughs> that's funny but yeah funny. It, it's uh it's great for us because being in the center of the country whenever we want to 
whenever we want to go anywhere, we're sort of centrally located. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I took a bunch of vehicles to New Zealand and Australia many years ago, and it was uh, it was very convenient to ship it right from here. So it works yeah. out great. Yeah, yeah, that's terrific. That's good. But, cool. uh, so you talk you yeah. talk about price. You know, this is price too high, or we were able to get this. I know you said something on the website about you tried. There was a prototype Jaguar that you could you couldn't get because of the price. What set? I mean, obviously market conditions, but what makes one of these things more valuable than another? And what kind of range do you tend to find when you're looking at these things? Tom, that is really, really good question, and I can answer it in a, in a couple of ways. When Eon Productions, the producers of the Bond films, when they held their 60 years of James Bond auction back in November, unfortunately for a lot of the general public, that sets the standard in the bar of what things are valued at. However, you have to be knowledgeable enough to realize that the people that spend that kind of money for those vehicles, they realize that it's for charity and the money, the, the, the huge amounts that they spend for something is for a good cause. Hmm. And, and the majority of the time, these people are wealthy individuals that money can be no object. They just want to own something from a bond film. That has a tendency to be one plateau that prices can be based on. They're not based on that price in reality because the general public cannot spend that kind of money. The other thing that you hope for when you go after something is that an individual owns a vehicle or owns a motorcycle or whatever it is and money isn't that important to them. They would just like to see it go to a good home. And we've had that before. And then there are auctions where people are not aware that something's coming up for sale and, and things have a tendency to go rather reasonably. The foundation now has major expenses with two huge hangers and, uh, and utilities. So we have to be very careful of the money that's spent. And it really has to be a remarkable bargain nowadays before we would ever go after anything from here on out. We do have people that donate things to us. Currently, we're in the process of accepting a donation of something that appeared in one of the Bond pictures, which we're grateful for, eternally grateful for. And that person who donates it can get a significant tax deduction or a tax yeah. write-off because we are a 501c3. Mm -hmm. But I, I do get solicitations from people that say, oh, I, I know I have a bond vehicle. And then I look at it and I go, no, you don't. You know, <laughs> that's, that, you know, you may have been told it's a bond vehicle, but I could tell you that it's not. Yeah. And I, yeah. I have the ability to reach out to a lot of people in the film industry that worked on the films and people that know. And if I have the slightest doubt at all, and if I can't prove anything, then I just move on and, and I won't even entertain it anymore. So, mm. Yeah, it's nice to have that kind of expertise because, you know, most people <laughs> don't. So you you could look at something yeah. pretty quickly and think, oh, no, that's that's not 
the real item. All right. So to pay for all of that, you do get you do get donations, and you are a five hundred one c three. So uh, U.S. citizens get a tax deduction for that. Correct. And Dan mentioned this earlier. If you go to www.ianflemingfoundation.org, there's a link there where you can make a donation through PayPal. Just just click on the donate link Mm -hmm. at the top menu, and it'll give you a chance to be able to help you guys out. Because, I mean, to be able to get this stuff and to store it and everything costs a lot of money. So it's it's great that people can help you out. And our, our... possible venture into a GoFundMe, possibly. We're, we're looking into the legalities of how to go about doing that. Initially, when we were going to restore the Jetstar, uh, there wasn't anything left in the cockpit, just two rotted out seats. All the instruments had been stripped and sold off, and there were dead carcasses of animals, and wow. you know there were things growing in there and everything else. That's all been taken care of and now we're putting back some instruments that we went back down to the the junkyard and we were managed we managed to salvage but we have a huge gap of things that we weren't initially going to put back in there but when you when you only do something partially and then you step back and you look and you go oh that looks terrible you might as well just get everything you need that's where we're hoping that we can find some some additional funds to be able to buy uh, some old radios that belonged in that era of Jetstar. It's a 1964 Jetstar. Uh, it's a Series 1 Jetstar. Uh, there's other gauges and things. Nothing that's going to work. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. this thing sits on... <laughs> I should tell you this. This Jetstar is now permanently mounted to the Moonraker boat trailer. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, how ironic is that? But the Moonraker yeah, really. is on a it's on a floor dolly now. It's the only way we can get it in and out of a semi truck, so it won't go back on its uh, boat trailer. But the Jetstar from Goldfinger is now sitting on the Moonraker trailer. That's funny. Uh, so I mean, the gauges and everything, we might illuminate them and make them light up, but. Uh, we think that it's going to be uh, an expense that at the moment with everything else that we're dealing with uh, that would be very helpful. So so any of your listeners that might know a source of uh, gauges or people that might be able to help or want to contribute, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah, so. absolutely. IanFlemingFoundation.org. Go there. Check yeah. it out. All right. Great. Yeah, and let us know if you do do a, a GoFundMe because we'll let our listeners know. Yep. Yeah. All right. This has been a great tour of the Ian Fleming Foundation. Thank you, Doug, for all that you do, and the Ian Fleming Foundation does as well. We, as Bond fans and spy movie fans out here, appreciate it. Thank you. It's been wonderful, guys. I really appreciate the invitation. Love the interview. I enjoyed it. Uh, You guys are great. Love the podcast. And, uh, It's an honor and privilege to be a part of it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This has been terrific. All right. That's a wrap. This has been Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Subscribe to our show through your favorite podcast app and help us out by giving us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you spending time with us.